welcome to the To Be Honest podcast. Um, I'm happy to have Annie on our podcast. Annie is a Bay Area native from Saratoga, California, who currently attends Rice University. And through her own experience with depression and anxiety, um, Annie discovered mindful meditation and is the creator and host of her own podcast, Chaotic Calm Podcast on Spotify. So welcome, Annie, to the To Be Honest podcast. Thank you so much, Avery. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, to get started, um, I want to ask every guest because, you know, sometimes throughout our days, I feel like people either like at the grocery store or even our, in our own lives, they'll ask us, how are you? And I think the normal response is, well, I'm fine. I'm good. So you don't want to go into detail about how you're actually feeling or burden someone with your actual feelings. So I want to ask you, to be honest, how are you doing today? Um, to be honest, I have been super anxious for like a week. So I'm like, ah! <laughs> right now where I like, I can sit down and find moments of, of focus and relative calm, which is good because sometimes it's like completely like every moment is out the window, you know? Um, but every, every trigger when I'm like changing, you know, changing tasks and stuff, every trigger just has me all. I just feel like calcified. Right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> and there's a lot going yeah. on. So I'm sure there are a lot of triggers for you. In everyday yeah. Life. yeah. But it's an interesting part of quarantine where, where you'd think that we all just feel like some empty gray box, but we're not, we're like, <laughs> we're thinking so much. So definitely. Would you mind sharing a bit about your own personal experience with mental health? Yeah. So I actually, I think was diagnosed with anxiety um, when I was in eighth grade. So I was like 13. Wait, maybe I was 12. No, I was 13. Um, and as, as I entered high school, I think the, just the constants and the severity of the anxiety helped to contribute to some depression. And for me, it went in that direction. I had anxiety first and depression um, with it and afterwards. And both of those kind of came in and out of um, my high school years. And I really interacted a lot with talk therapy, um, primarily cognitive behavioral therapy. But towards the end of my um, high school years, I, I got a little taste of internal family systems. And I don't know if this is familiar to any of the listeners, but that ended up being a really helpful um, just way of framing mental health for me. When you first started experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety, um, what were some of those first symptoms? Yeah, so I know that I experienced things very, like, physically. So when I, whenever anxiety onsets, it's very similar to, like, probably the first time that it happened, um, where my heart will, like, it feels like acid reflux in my in my chest, <laughs> And I, um, my like throat will feel sore and then I'll just be really fatigued because it's kind of like, like anxiety, I imagine is kind of like having your like antennas up all the time and you're just stimulated by everything and then you just get exhausted. Um, yeah, that was, those were the physical sensations I think that I got and and like all of it kind of just contributed to a feeling of like clouded thinking and never feeling like one whole, just, it's just like 
like where did the lubricant go? It's just I'm all over the place. How did you feel when you first experienced um, those first symptoms of anxiety? Did, did you know what was happening? Uh, did you know who to talk to about it? Yeah, uh, this is interesting. Honestly, it was it was just so long ago. Like I think that um, having attended therapy for the first time when I was thirteen, I was really lucky to have been able to do that because most people probably go to the therapist the first time when they're in college and have like a school therapist that's already paid for that you you don't need to do anything except show up, right? Um, so I talked. I think I talked to my mom first, probably. And she was super open to therapy, which is really interesting, especially for an immigrant parent um, and specifically an Asian immigrant parent. Like, shout out to my mom. Like, I don't know where she got that thinking, but it was super vital to to giving me support as soon as I needed it. Um, yeah, but I, I will say and I hear this a lot from my friends, which is why I want to mention it. I will say that when I first like started going to therapy and that's really what delineated for me, it's like, Oh, okay. I have prolonged enough anxiety, like chronic enough that I need help. Um, there was definitely a sense of guilt there, right? Where it's like, why is there something wrong with me? And then that guilt is compounded by the fact that like coming from a really stable family with, you know, no like feeling of financial stress and I just haven't experienced anything traumatic in my life. I was like, why do I deserve to take care of myself in this way when I should just be functioning? Like what, what reason do I have to be mentally injured? Um, yeah. Have you ever asked your mom, like, what what prompted her to help you get services? Or was there anything in particular that she noticed that um, made her think, like, maybe my daughter needs professional assistance? That's a good question. I don't know really what prompted her. I think, I think it was just a philosophy of, um, you know, if listeners want to pitch this to their parents, <laughs> a philosophy of, it is never shameful and it doesn't like, it doesn't erode your strength to ask for help. I think that that's like something that we don't realize because the leaders in our lives, you know, like certainly there are politicians that we all shame, but there are also politicians as the most classic form of leader that we admire and they don't talk about seeking mental health even though you know they're under so much pressure, of course they are, right? Or, or they, they probably need to be. Um, I think it's just like we don't ever look at someone that we call strong and then associate, oh, they asked for mental health help. That's just not something we think about. But I think for my mom, she was like, yeah, it is a sign of resilience and like just wisdom to, um, to ask for help. Um. Yeah. What was the second part to your question? What did she notice? Um, I was crying every day, <laughs> like for, for no reason. I know that happens a lot for people that are 
maybe experiencing like uh, abusive relationships and, and other things that are very like emotionally tolling. Um, but for me, that was a symptom of, of just chronic anxiety. So at what age did you receive your diagnosis? I think I was probably 13. Okay. Um, and did it make you feel better knowing like specifically what was going on? No, <laughs> I think, I think it's like, it felt like I suddenly had like taken a piece of tape, written anxiety and Sharpie and then stuck it on my head. And then I was like walking around. I mean, it's like, it's like when you get diagnosed with cancer, does anyone feel better about like, no, <laughs> right? because then you suddenly fall into a category that of which we carry like around which we carry stigma. And it, it just seems like, like, I think for a moment I was distracted by uh, the, the like, average definition of anxiety or depressed and everything that comes along with it rather than being able to, to really specifically observe how it worked in myself. And so while ultimately I think it's good to get a diagnosis because having the just accumulated experience of other people, like, yeah, that's, that's how treatment happens right like we look at the past and we're like okay this is what works but I completely understand when people get diagnosed and then run away because they're like that's not me I don't want I don't want all that bucket nope you take it back I'm assuming that the um the in-person like therapy and counseling kind of was the direction that you took and it was it worked for you yeah, yeah. So I did like once a week um, talk therapy and I probably went through like three or four therapists over the course of three or four years. Um, and it, I definitely wasn't always seeing a therapist. Like it was one of their acute stretches. I would like, yeah, I would see one frequently and then I would kind of drop off and then like after a while, you know, like fine. And then I notice, oh shit. <laughs> um and and then on board again. And I was really lucky to have school health services um, at, at my high school in the Bay Area, which is also pretty special. Um, and unfortunately, I think our school decided to do it after uh, we had a suicide. Um, that's not, you know, we should definitely be initiating before that. However, that, that is the case and that's what I did have access to. I'm curious about your transition from high school to college. Was it easy for you to find um, mental health resources once you went to college? And what was your approach to that? Yeah. So Rice University has um, counseling services that are, like most universities, not meant to be long term, which is, I think, an issue. um, Because so I, I think like the expectation is you can go for like six to eight sessions. And if you need more regular therapy than they will um they'll they'll like outsource you to something in the houston area um the reason why i found that to be problematic is because the relationship that you have for the therapist is so important like it it takes even for someone that opens up easily like i do you literally have to officially go through two onboarding sessions but it takes a while to onboard and then like 
you build trust and also just like the therapist needs to know that like literal pieces of information about you to understand how your brain works right um and so just the prospect of having to move after a few sessions kind of deterred me from going um which is yeah and that's i think as universities care more and more about mental health they should um be doing more of that but um yeah, I like didn't do a good job of really going to therapy because it always felt like taking time out of my day, which is, it's true, but it's an, a return on investment, right? Like <laughs> you get a lot more out of it than the one hour you put in. Um, so I'm, I'm meant to go more often, but I guess over the, the past year, my mental health has been really decent, which kind of bleeds into, I think, an, um, another question that you wanted to ask, which is that investing time in in like learning about your brain and um and in whatever form works for you right like strengthening your mental health because i kind of see it as a as a muscle rather than like a rather than like a hole that you dig yourself in you kind of have to just like come back to surface level it's more of like this is resilience and things at some point in a human being's life, you will probably encounter things that will like push you into anxiety, depression, or other, the many, many other um, just mental illnesses that there are. Um, and so building up that muscle, no matter who you are and whether or not you're experiencing acute symptoms, I think is a valuable thing because it, it helps me just get exposed to like the whole world of psychology and just understand my mind better. And then when I got to college, which was a shock for me in many ways that I think academically it was okay. Um, as a student from the Bay area, I like had felt that kind of pressure before. Uh, but in terms of like having roommates and then having romantic relationships for the first time and being far away from family and, and just having like extraordinary independence in some of the work that I was doing. Um, all of that did get me to have to engage my mental muscles of like, okay, I'm feeling overwhelmed. What do I do in the next hour or the next day to respond to that? Um, it really helped to diffuse moments where I was like, feeling really anxious or feeling like I was dropping to depression. Yeah. I really like that. You said, um, you touched on resilience. I think that's so important, especially growing up. I know like, I wish I had learned coping skills or, you know, like, you know, my triggers early on. So when you do experience those moments, you are prepared. You can kind of prevent things from getting worse or you can reach out to someone and ask for help when you need it before you know, things get worse. So I think that's really important. Let's talk about your podcast a little bit. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about um, the, the Chaotic Calm podcast? Yeah. Uh, so basically what it is, is um, short weekly episodes. I, I try to keep it like under eight minutes. Actual real tidbit. I record it's like so long. I got to cut it down to eight minutes. <laughs> That's usually what happens. Um, but short, accessible, you do not need to come in with any knowledge of 
traditional meditation techniques or of mindfulness itself. Um, and as someone that has like never led mindfulness meditation and never really been uh, trained in a, like a, you know, a long program for it, I, I kind of think of it as, okay, this is me with, with my experiences with mindfulness and with certain talk therapy, um, like techniques and then exploring together how those things apply to the the challenges um, that we experience as students. And the reason why I created it actually was just that I didn't, I went on Spotify, I searched college student meditation and there was nothing. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, because, because like the young adult, um, like age is, is a time that's just ridiculously filled with change and change is difficult and change requires growth and growth doesn't taste good a lot of the time. Um, and so, okay, clearly there are specific issues that are less relevant for older adults that are relevant for us so that other meditation podcasts that are focused for, you know, for moms and for just, just older adults don't address these things. And so I, in every episode, um, address a specific topic, whether it be like living through the climate crisis or being a young person during the elections or an upcoming episode um, is going to be about just like rejections from college and from internships and jobs. That's, those are things that I think um, are really ingrained in the, the challenges that we face as young people. Yeah, definitely. I think it's awesome that you kind of are filling that gap that you saw that something didn't exist and you created it on your own. Um, did you know much about, I know you kind of said like you had never led mindful meditation before, but had you had experience practicing it before? Yeah. So I first got exposed to mindfulness um, in my freshman year of high school when one of our special ed education um, teachers actually she would just lead, I think, every other day in my English class, um, like a like a five minute mindfulness breathing thing, and I was just shocked. Like, like I talk about talk therapy as an investment, mindfulness is like a whole other level. Like you you spend five minutes, and then you're like, where has my mind been in the past five days? Because it's, it's yeah yeah yeah. It's so you kind of like for me, I always feel like before the the mindfulness I like I'm going down this tunnel I'm like I know I need to do this I know I need to work on this I know I'm struggling with this and then the meditation kind of just makes you like lie back and like look up at the sky and you're like oh my god I'm so much bigger than that and the world is so much bigger than that and I, I can just like I don't have to keep chugging I can kind of just sit for a second so it's shocking and I I was like just amazed at how powerful breathing could be like whoever came up with, you know, lung breathing, good for you. Like, <laughs> good job. Because um, that's it's great. It's a great process. Um, and so after that, I just continued to like interact with it, listen to other people's meditation podcasts when I needed to. And then my senior year, um, I actually did like a, a short course with her on um, mindfulness and gratitude meditation. But it was it was short and it was like very focused. 
Um, so yeah, that's where most of my experience comes from. And I also do say that being a dancer and, um, you know, in class, what happens in dance is your teacher says, feel the muscle on the right side of your foot and <laughs> point it for me. And it's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> did not know that was there, but now I do. Right. Um, and I think that being just for like for the past 10 years of my life, having to be very conscious about my body, not in terms of am I skinny or not, but like in terms of my muscular makeup and positioning and everything feeds into the concept of mindfulness as a observational like practice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You're not only in tune with your body now, but you're in tune with your mind in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how, how did you practice uh, mindful meditation now? Is it an everyday thing for you or how often do you do it? That's really funny. And this is, this is funny for, I think listeners of my podcast to hear, um, which is that I don't, I think that um, it would be really good for me to practice it every day, but it's more like a few times a week and I generally do it like either. Okay. When I'm really stressed and I'm like down in the, in the deep, I'll do it then. And then there'll also be moments where I'm like feeling like free and feeling like I have, you know, extra time, extra mental space or whatever. I'd be like, okay, time to invest a little bit and I'll put it in a little pocket and so it's just like, it's on the two extremes. I do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really good and I'm really bad. Um, that makes yeah. sense though. Yeah. When you have time, you're doing it. When you feel the most stress, yeah, you want to take part in it. So that totally makes sense. Um, yeah. I personally have never, I've done like a, a small meditation, um, like workshop at work. We had someone come in and do breathing exercises, but it was, yeah, it was like maybe half an hour. But I almost fell asleep while <laughs> practicing because I was just like so calm. And I was like, wow, I did not realize like how, like you said, like how powerful it can really be to just like take a few minutes out of your day to just focus on almost nothing. <laughs> you just kind of let your mind go free. And it's so like beneficial for your mental health. Yeah. yeah we're lucky that you don't, you don't need to invest too much in it. It just really gives back. Yeah, definitely. Um. So are there other things that helped you heal on your recovery journey? Okay. For me, the main experience of anxiety and depression is just really loud and really uh, unrestricted thoughts. Like not unrestricted in the sense that they would go everywhere, but like just like the same thing hitting again and again and again. Um, And so having like scheduled prolonged exercise which is normal for high school students i feel like because a lot of people are engaged in some kind of school sport or or club sport um but in college i chose to in the first year just dedicate myself to the dance team um or or not dedicate my all my time but like make sure that i go right um like part of the reason why meditation is helpful is because you're asked not to think about anything which is like counterintuitive because you're like wait i need to think about the issue to like get out of it but but i just sometimes i feel like you have to do something else to completely just like imagine like the hamilton stage right like it's like 
like it's just rotating it turns it turns your perspective and it shifts certain like pieces of furniture in your head and then you're like oh okay well now the problem isn't as rooted and difficult to to kind of dissipate yeah yeah i think having like hobbies or like something to focus on kind of gives you a chance to step back from whatever may be going through your mind constantly, at least for me. And I know a lot of um, like nonprofits, mental health nonprofits that have programs. They do like we have a gardening program. We have a book club. We have art programs. I think there's just a bunch of different um, ways that we try to not like distract people, but I think to give them a chance to step back from whatever is kind of bothering them or making them feel the way that they feel um, and give them the space to focus on something else for a little while. Yeah. I think of it kind of as like writer's block where um, sometimes a person just needs to be in a different place or like doing a different motion for things to start making sense. Uh, yeah. It's just like switching seats in a room. Right. And you're like, Oh, okay. I can see it. And that's totally true. Um, what advice would you give to someone who may be experiencing symptoms of a mental illness right now? Yeah, I think that's definitely a difficult question um, in quarantine because it is difficult to initiate. Like, for example, if I was to say, you know, like go find counseling services, um, it can be difficult to initiate a relationship, a tr- a tr- like full of trust with a therapist over the phone. Um, and I also wanted to say, like, find a mental health buddy, find a friend that you can speak honestly about these things with. Um, and that has also experienced something similar so that they have a clearer view of what it is that you may need. Um, but that can also be really difficult because we're all afraid to burden people. I think most of us are. Um, and it can definitely be difficult on, on the other side to just be a bastion of support, right? But I think that like a combination of um, of like searching for actual like physical human help, so that through um, some kind of therapy services um, or like group therapy or um, also finding a friend. And I would say, I think that there are more and more like podcasts and online resources like those um, coming out that, that really discuss this kind of stuff. And I, I was really happy to hear um, a few people from, from Rice that were listening to my podcast that also like, that didn't know me very well, you know, um, would say like, Oh, it, it feels like, talking to a friend about mental health it somehow like you've made it feel so familiar and so casual already and I think that that is true for some podcasts out there that just feel like very very casual and very open and able to discuss um mental health and just like a kind of a rational and uh like normal way which is not what most of us have because most of us like you know need to like either come crying or like in a state of like having convinced ourselves like it's 
it's okay that I'm feeling this. It's okay. It's okay. And then like finally show up rather than like, oh, this is like normal breakfast table conversation. Yeah. I think that's so important to normalize that conversation because it is, it's, I mean, this is kind of a, you know, maybe like a cliche thing to say, but like what, what is different from a mental health issue from a physical health issue? You know, like it's still part, part of your body that, you know, needs attention. <laughs> so why, why is it so stigmatized and how can we kind of reduce that stigma around it? I, I did want to say, I think I, I was thinking about this and like specifically depression can feel very, very, I think both anxiety and depression for me were pretty crippling. Um, but depression especially genuinely feels like an illness because it is so encompassing and like you wake up and you feel good. You look at the sun, you feel good for two seconds and you're like, Oh wait, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> and this is how I'm feeling. Um, I think a mindset shift occurred for me when I went to college and realized how many people do live with, with mental illness and yet are still people that I respect. And like, like, of course I respected the people at my high school, but when you go to Rice, like you come in actually a little intimidated because it's like, what the 16th best school in the nation or whatever. And like, everyone got a 4.8 GPA and everyone was the Victorian and everyone gave, you know, like whatever, gave the grad speech. And, and so you show up and you're like, well, everyone must be perfect. And then you're like, oh, wait, a third of students go through our mental counseling services. And for sure, there are other students that want to and probably could benefit from it, but have not gone, right? Like me, like I, I wouldn't want to. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and and so there's a, I think there's a realization that like a physical illness, which we oftentimes, I think, have in this country gone to the point of destigmatizing most physical illnesses to the point where we can like say, I expect that I can work around it. I expect that I can still feel like a valued person in society or to myself in spite of it. This just exists. I didn't choose it, but I will find a workaround. And whereas mental illness feels like something that you need to like shove off the face of the continent, you know, and like go drop into the ocean, please. I think what it actually is, is like, especially, um, I don't know. I think especially for me as someone that had it at such a young age and I feel like um, I will experience depression, anxiety, and perhaps other mental illnesses in in my life in the future. Like looking forward, I think a, a way to make me feel less concerned about it. And also I think what is accurate in the way that we interact with it is to view it like a physical illness, right? Like as something that I live with rather than I solve. Like I live with it. I know how to work with it, work around it. And I don't try to eliminate it. Yeah. I don't think we should be looking at it as like, we, yeah, we need to get rid of it. Um, because it is, it's not something that defines us, but it is still something that is part of us um, that we do have to, you know, find solutions for, but it doesn't mean that's going to go away forever. Um, so I think that's super, super important. Uh, so thanks for touching on that. Um, is there something maybe positive that you found from having a mental illness? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just me, like, 
it's made my mind healthier than my friends that have not experienced it, to be honest. Um, like I just have information and like awareness and experience around certain parts, certain like processes that my thoughts will go through. Um, and like just like knowledge of the landscape in a way that, um, I don't feel like a foreigner to my mind. I would like to say, and I, I don't know if this is an accurate metaphor and, and does it justice, but it, like I think about like indigenous people's connection to the land and how the Western climate movement has more and more been like, oh, wait, <laughs> wait, we need to pay attention to these things that we called like just magical thinking and like irrational or whatever for so long and realize, oh, because people that have been here that have spent time observing rather than like ignoring and just moving forward, um, have so much more knowledge and just like comprehensive understanding of how things work and can recognize signals, um, and also know the solutions. Like that kind of familiarity with my mind is helpful in all kinds of things. Like when I'm just, when I realize I have a personal goal for growth for like as a leader or whatever, having worked with my mind in other ways translates to, to this. Let's talk about the future um, because, you know, like we've said, your mental illness does not define you. So I want to know more about you and like what you're excited for in the future. Yeah. Um, there, so I am planning to be remote for the entire year. Um, and I'm considering doing the Pacific Crest Trail backpacking, which is really scary because it's so long. I'm just like, everything could happen. And I'm definitely not coming out of that unscathed. And I'm like, what is going to save me? Like, I need to know. Um, so that's, that's going to be cool. And like, part of me is like afraid that like, whether I do it alone or with like a few friends, it'll be uh, an isolating experience, which is like really scary for, um, I think for someone that like does experience mental illness and also like is very extroverted, <laughs> like both those <laughs> factors <laughs> kind of freak me out. Um, but yeah, that, that also should be like a nice break, I think from the rhythm of, of normal life. I'm also really excited for you. I know people say um, they're excited to come back to normal. And I also know that that's like normal is likely not to not to happen for a bit. I mean, when when is normal ever? Right. Like everything's always changing. Um, but I am definitely excited to like hug a human being besides my sister. <laughs> like That'll be great. It'll be amazing. Cannot wait. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share on the podcast before we wrap things up? I was just going to say, if, you, if you're looking out for the Chaotic Come podcast, that's what it's called on Spotify. And it can also, I also have an Instagram um, for it where I post updates. And it's just at Chaotic Come podcast. Awesome. Well, 
Thank you so much, Annie. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast and hopefully we can stay in touch through Instagram. Um, I want to hear all about your mindful meditation podcast. So yeah, yeah, hopefully we can talk again soon. Thank you so much, Avery. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you were able to join us for the whole episode, thank you so much for listening. We are so grateful to have you and hope you choose to keep listening as we continue to share stories from youth and young adults in Santa Clara County. If you would like to learn more about To Be Honest in our podcast, please visit tobehonest.today. Our website has everything from mental health education to an online screening tool, resources, and so much more. And if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast and would like to share your own experience with behavioral health, please email us at tbh.today at gmail.com. We also have all of this information in the show notes, so we hope to talk to you soon. Bye.